um, as our sermon will be continuing our exposition of Exodus. We start reading in verse 1 of chapter 11. We go into chapter 12, verse 14. Exodus 11, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards he will let you go hence. When he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out hence altogether. Speak now in the ears of the people, and let every man borrow of his neighbor, and every man of her neighbor jewels of silver and jewels of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, about midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon the throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these thy servants shall come down unto me, and bow down themselves unto me, saying, Get thee out, and all the people that follow thee. And after that I will go out. And he went from Pharaoh in a great anger. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go out of his land. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man, according to his eating, shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep and from the goats, and ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it, In the evening, and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire his head with his legs and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. 
And thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. And ye shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Thus far, may God bless the reading of His own word and the preaching of it soon as well. We return our attention to the book of Exodus chapter 11. And we arrive at the last plague um, we have been um, in the past um, months looking at, in a, in a general way, a few of these chapters we've looked more concisely, but at, at the first nine plagues in a general way. And now we arrive at the last plague. And even, even with the very thought that this morning would be the Lord's Supper, I, I believed it, it went. It was a blessing to continue in this place because what we have um, in, in verse chapter 11 in the, in, the insti- in the declaration of this death, tenth plague, we have the very foundation and the very beginnings, the very inception of where the Lord's Supper came from. Um, Matthew Henry places the time of Moses around 1490, 1490. This is based on Bishop um, James Usher, who, who was the one who really put a lot of dates together. Um, James Usher considers Moses' birth around 1571 before Christ. Um, Jerome, um, who was also someone who attempted to put dates to all of these events, he put Moses' birth at 1592. So the time of the Exodus would have been roughly around 1400s. So around 3,500 years ago, the Lord's Supper had its very foundation in the Lord's Passover. It was the Lord's Passover that the Lord Jesus began celebrating at what was then later called the Last Supper. It wasn't just the Last Supper of the Lord Jesus before He went to the cross. It was the Last Lord's Passover Supper. Because in that very night, he changed that Passover Supper into the Lord's Supper, where no longer we would need a lamb, and no longer we would need it to be slaughtered and handle with the blood and handle the blood. In slaughtering that lamb, it meant that every house was having their sacrifice for sin. 
And the Lord Jesus is our great sacrifice for sin. The very fact that we do not have a lamb this morning is a message. The very fact that this is wine and not blood is very emphatic because we are declaring by the very absence of a victim and the absence of shed blood that there has been already the fulfillment of what those lambs were all pointing to. Um, there's, there's a movement going on, even among Christians, and it's very connected to Messianic Christians, that there's this nostalgic feeling of all these, of all these um, feasts of the Old Testament, and they, they think that by replicating them, there can be some blessings. You, know, you, you can really see these feasts, as it were, more as a, as a museum piece. You can study them. You can see pictures about them around the table and, and, the, and, the, and the lamb being killed at the temple and then being brought to the house. But to, to actually live them out is not observing the very reality of what all those feasts were communicating. And it is precisely what we're doing today what we read in chapter 12, verse 14, where God said, God said to, to them, And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it as a feast by an ordinance forever. And so if, if we take this literally, we would say, well, let's keep on offering the lamb. Let's keep on slaughtering and and." making sacrifices but this is not realizing what this very feast meant it was communicating a promise and if you believe the promise you have to believe when it happened and you see if you keep on offering a lamb and you keep on shedding the blood you are in fact declaring the promise has not yet come it is indeed actually a great sin to insist in slaughtering a lamb continuously. It's one thing to see it in pictures, or even if you go to a farm and see a, a farmer slaughtering the lamb just to see how it looks because that lamb will then be sold. There's no, nothing wrong in doing that, but replicating the whole process to then enact the feast is missing the mark completely. It is as if your heart declaring, I'm still waiting for the promise. And so you see, beloved, this, this is the obedience of this very command. And notice the harmony of it all. It is to Abraham that God said that that mark that was to be given, where blood would be shed upon every male child. And when they heard that command, even the adult men had to receive the sign of circumcision. And you find the same verse in Genesis that that was an ordinance forever. And we declare that we obey that very summons every time the water of baptism is placed upon a man or a woman. See, even there you see how God's grace has... has it was grace before too because He spared the girls from any kind of blood, but the men had to bear it. But now that the mark is the mark of water, it is for men and women. And, and so we continue the spirit of that very promise because... And why not the shedding of blood? Why no longer circumcision as a sacrament? Because Christ has come. Our very lack 
of using circumcision as a sacrament is declaring Jesus came. So we use water, not blood. And water that can go upon a boy and a girl. And they don't need to cry when that happens any longer. Because all the suffering, all the death happened already for Jesus. See, look at the parallels. This very supper that we're talking about had to be eaten with bitter herbs. It was a command. You, You had to dip bread in bitter herbs. And yes, that plays with the taste and it can even be interesting to eat. But it's bitter. It's not sweet. It is something that applies and speaks of of suffering. The very lamb was not to be um, sodden in water. That means boiled. It had to be baked and, and it had to be over fire, roasted. It was speaking of the suffering of the lamb and even of the affliction of the people. But now we have bread and wine. And, and it brings sweetness. It brings nourishment. All the suffering was Jesus. So this is why we're here in Exodus, even though we're preparing our hearts for, for the Lord's Supper. Let, let me briefly bring these three points. The last plague, the only protection, and then thirdly, keeping the Passover feast. And this third point, keeping the Passover feast, as, as you may consider, will be when we keep the Lord's Supper itself. We're, we're keeping the Passover feast in the gospel way, in the Christ-instituted way, where no longer we really call it a Passover feast, but there's still all the elements of it, even the reality that those who partake of the blood of Christ by faith and trust in His death, God's wrath will pass over you and not through you. You see, this is an ordinance that began with the Passover feast. Let me talk just a little bit about this last plague. I, I won't go into too many details. We don't have time on this sermon, but, but you'll, you'll notice in God's Word that all of chapter 12 still is focusing upon that last plague. It is in verse 29 that the angel of the Lord comes and the death of the firstborn happens. And it's in verse 37 that their long trip begins and they, and they leave Egypt. And so for a couple other sermons, we, we will be looking at all the details and all the intricacies of that dinner. But I just want to bring these first um, three general points. One is, is regarding... This last plague and something very unique that was happening with this one compared to all the other nine. Um, All of the other nine. I I always need to be careful when I say all because I need to make sure that's exactly what I've noticed. But every time I'm reading through different commentaries, almost to all of these plagues, you'll have commentaries. If you you go to some commentaries that, that are clearly more on the liberal side... They're all trying to say that those events maybe had elements of of miracle and and when God brought them or the intensity, but it was really, after all, just natural events. And you'll you'll find explanations like this, that um, the parting of the Red Sea had to do with earthquakes and winds, and and that made it where they could pass through the dry land. And and then you'll find um, explanations that that red upon the Nile could have been just a red kind of seaweed. And then when all of that rotted, there was the coming out of the river of the frogs 
dogs because it was not so hospitable for them there. So they came to the land, and, and when the frogs died, then that explains the lice and the fleas, and then later some diseases. And, and what you find there is, is almost this, this desire to explain that there was, after all, really nothing so majestic about them. And then you go to some commentaries that are reformed and serious. It's, it's in these commentaries that I really learn about what happens in those other commentaries. I don't really go there too much, but it's these commentaries will comment on how so many theologians, they just have this effort to explain that, that after all, it was mainly, 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 mainly coincidence. But the good reformed commentaries say, no, every last one of these plagues were Miraculous. They were all supernatural. Yes, God may have used nature. There are eclipses. There are frogs. There are locusts. But these were supernatural uses of nature. And I just want to point this out today. This last plague seals, as it were, this reality. Because there's nothing natural about the firstborn of every family to die. And then they see this replicated in the animal kingdom. Every firstborn of all the animals surrounding them are dying. You can imagine a father sending out a son who's a secondborn because the firstborn died, but the secondborn goes and he, and he sees that the firstborn um, um, of, that, of that cow and the firstborn of that sheep and the firstborn of that goat, they're the ones who are dying. Not the secondborn or the thirdborn. And the firstborn is in masculine. It is all the men who are firstborn. We, we are living in a day of a pandemic. And we see that, that disease does not classify that specifically who it will get. It might be perhaps those who have lesser conditions. And it could be those who have lesser health. And, and sometimes we see that even... Even with COVID, we see sometimes that somebody very healthy and strong may still get sick. But you see what's happening here. And, and what, Paul, what God said to, to, to Moses that would happen, it will be the firstborn from, from the prince that sits in Pharaoh's throne to the firstborn of the maid. But you see, it's not just a disease for rich and for poor. It is a disease for the firstborn of the rich and the firstborn of the poor. It is the firstborn whether you're a baby. It's the firstborn whether you're old. If you were a grandfather, but you were the firstborn in your family, you would die. And if you had an uncle in your home and he was the firstborn in his family, he would die. And if there was a baby in the home who was the firstborn, that baby would die. And again, it would replicate with their animals around them. God was showing without any kind of possible explanation, this is my hand. This is the last plague. And we'll, Lord willing, say more about it in the, in the future. But then I want to speak of the only protection in our second point. See, as God had been doing through some of these plagues where he was dividing his people and, and bringing hail to the Egyptians, but not hail to his people in Goshen, he also divided here. But in this division, there was something now that every Israelite who would believe, it would be their, their declaration of their confession of their faith. Because there could be some Jewish people, some Israelites who would say, I don't trust in the blood of this land. 
And if that family failed to put the blood on the doorposts, the angel of the Lord would pass through that home and not over it. And so now God is bringing this reality that even among His people, if they would be protected, it's not that they have to do a work. It's not a matter of a merit that they would have. It is simply this. It's amazing how this is such a beautiful emblem of faith. It's not that God would say, you know, you went through the trouble of killing the lamb, you went through the trouble of putting it on the doorpost, and and on the basis of your obedience, and on the basis of your sweat, I will reward you and give you life. It, It had nothing to do with their work. It was simply the reality that they were looking to the God of their creation, that they now had absolutely not a single reason to not trust. Anyone who would not trust Jehovah, living that whole reality, would show their mindlessness, would show what a foolish reasoning process they had. It it, it would just show the utter pride of their hearts. Because this was now the ninth plague. And they were told to get a lamb and to slaughter it and to paint the doorposts. What was all of that? It was faith. It was a family saying, I believe God. And based on that faith, that God would have been the one who gave it to them, these families were justified. They were protected. And now we understand, even there we need to say that this was not an emblem of pure salvation in in an entire way because we know that many of those families who started their their pilgrimage later showed they had no faith at all and, and they were chastised by the Lord. But that was what God was honoring to save the people in a national way. So I'm not here saying that He was saving them like in an evangelical way, but He was protecting them as they trusted the blood of the Lamb. And even if someone in that home didn't have a personal faith in in the Messiah to come, they were being protected by that blood. That's the reality of a covenant family, of the reality of how if, if you're among God's people where you're hearing His word, there will be a protection from you for you but but that doesn't guarantee that you're saved just because you're here just because you're in a Christian family you need to have personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for for true salvation in your heart and so it's amazing how in all of this we we see elements of God's covenant love and 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 pointing what to what true salvation is there was only protection for the families that had blood upon their doorposts. And and two things, and even these two things, I want to develop longer in a a longer sermon, but we we only have five brief minutes here, and I, I want to bring these two things, that this only protection was based on, number one, the purity of the Lamb. They could not bring to their home a lamb with blemish. It had to be a lamb without blemish. And so you can imagine there could be a home that said, you know what, this lamb is good. It's about to die. It's going to die anyway. Let's use its blood. Well, you would be in severe danger. 
If you look at the principles, if you interpret it literally, if you dare to use the blood of a blameless, of a, of an, of, of a, of a lamb with blame, a lamb with blemish, a lamb that maybe had blind eyes or was lame or was sick, ready to die. God could interpret that blood and, and know that it came from a lamb that was not blameless and you would die, the firstborn. So there's this focus on the purity of the lamb. And I, of course, with this want us to focus upon the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ. During the Lord's Supper, I'll read a few more verses, but just a few. It's astonishing to think when you start digging them out of Scripture how many there are about the moral purity of Jesus. It's beginning with Jesus' own declaration. Think, of course, for any one of us to say this would be utterly, it would be a lie and it would be proud. But this is Jesus saying in John eight forty six, Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? Now, notice how Jesus says it. He's, he's offering them an opportunity to accuse him. He says, which of you convinced me of sin? Can you imagine saying that to your spouse or to your children? And, and, and they'll look at you and say, really, Daddy? You want me to say the last time you, you raised your voice and last time you were impatient? Last time I heard what you said to Mom? And the last time I I, I saw what you did with that friend? We can't ask this question to people. It's too dangerous. But we should ask it to our loved ones for the sake of repentance. You can say, honey, can you just tell me in what ways I've been sinning? You can never dare say, can you convince me of my sins? Well, they'll, they'll start. And it's what we'll need to hear. But when Jesus asked this, there was nothing they could say. Of course, they invented sins. They, they spoke of Jesus speaking with people who were sinners, and they just conjectured with that, that he was, he was just giving them fodder for their kinds of life. And, and then they started accusing him of drinking too much because he saw them in banquets, but never, ever, ever, was Jesus seen the slightest bit what could be considered under the influence of alcohol? There was simply not that existence. Jesus was pure. It is as we read in Hebrews 7.26, For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Four declarations of his sinlessness and then a result of it, higher than the heavens. And then in Hebrews 4, before this, verse 15, we read, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And so many verses. First Peter, it was Peter's... Now, now notice how emphatic this is. Peter was with Jesus three years straight, ministering with the Lord Jesus, close to the Lord Jesus. And in First Peter 2.22, he said about Jesus, "...who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth." Can you imagine being with a friend and really stopping to think and thinking, I've never 
seen him sin. I've never heard him say one sinful word. And then think of the testimony of John, who was the closest friend of Jesus. In 1 John 3, 5, he says, And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No sin whatsoever. They never saw Jesus lying. They never saw Jesus impatient. They never even dreamed that Jesus could have a lustful thought or a lustful eye or covetous for anything. The Lord Jesus never sinned a single sin. And it is what was prophesied in Isaiah 53, 9. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. And even the thief that was on the cross before Jesus said this, Luke 23, 41. And we indeed justly, he's telling his friend, we deserve to be here. We've sinned plenty, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And the astonishing um, record is that when Pilate speaks of the worthiness of Jesus to die, he declares there's none. The very accuser cannot accuse. That's why Jesus is the one where, whom you and I have protection if you're under his sacrifice. And this is a second focus. And, and, and again, some of this will bring into the Lord's Supper itself. As important as it was for them to be there eating, eating the right way and eating the bread without um, leaven and and eating it with bitter herbs and, and, and eating dressed up and all of those things were very, very important. But the most important thing of it all, because they could have all that ready, but if the father had forgotten to put the blood on the post, they were in severe trouble. Everybody would grieve and the firstborn would die. The blood was the pivotal element of the Lord's Passover. And God himself said, when I see that blood, I will pass over. And beloved, every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, this is the critical thing. Are you saved by the blood of the Lamb? When God looks to your heart, does He see the blood of Jesus? And little children, how will He see the blood of Jesus? By your faith in Jesus. And that repentant kind of faith. Faith is always repentant. You don't love sin. You love Jesus. And you need Jesus. And you trust that His death on the cross is what saves you from your sins. He, the one who has no sin, is the one who receives your sins upon Him. And that's why He died. And He covers you with your righteousness when you had none of your own. And when God sees that you have that blood, His wrath passes over you. And on the great day of judgment, 
It is His grace that will welcome you into heaven. And His wrath will have passed over. But it didn't pass over Jesus. And that's why this bread and this wine speaks of Christ who died for sinners. Because the wrath of the Lord passed through Him on the cross. And beloved, now we have the great blessing in a few moments to observe the Lord's Passover turned into the Lord's Supper because the wrath of God passed through the very heart of Jesus while on the cross. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God Almighty, what a privilege we have that after 3,500 some years that the beginnings of this very supper were instituted that we can partake with bread and wine for, th- for at least a thousand four hundred and some years it couldn't they needed lambs every home Jerusalem would be flooded with lambs some records say hundreds of thousands of lambs but no longer we don't hear the bleeding of lambs in this worship service we don't, we don't smell even the fragrance of fresh shed blood because 2,020 some years ago, the Lord Jesus came to this earth and gave his life. And we, Lord, this service desire to focus our hearts in gratitude that the Lord Jesus is the Lamb who gave himself for the sins of the world. And we plead, Lord, that we would be as those who who don't just generically believe these truths, but who truly believe that Christ died in our stead. And We pray, Lord, that thou would be glorified in our so doing. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. We do pray, Lord, that thou would bless. Um, Also, we're, we're just mindful and pleading that thou would be comforting all the Davis family, the, the Berries, as they consider the, the death of Mrs. Margaret Berry. Um, we thank thee, Lord, for the years she had, for the families that sprung out of her, for so many, Lord, who know thee. And we pray that thou would bless the funeral service, that many more would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as they may sit under the preaching of thy word. Please, Lord, bless in that way. Lord, with all of our loved ones, we, many of us know so many who do not know thee, Lord, and we, we pray that they would know the Lord Jesus Christ. Even, Lord, elements of this, of this very message, we, we see these people who were in a land that was dark, and yet thy word was shining forth. And many, we do hope and trust, Lord, came to believe in the Jehovah, uh, in Jehovah, God of thy people, that they became thy people too. Could it be, Lord, that some of the Egyptians' homes would even then trust and, and put blood upon their doorposts or, or maybe even went with thy people as they left? We do hear of a mixed people joining the Jews. And Lord, we, we are part of this mixed people. We, 
We are not all here pure from the line of Abraham, but we are spiritually because of thy grace. We are sons and daughters of Abraham through our faith in Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that thou would graciously instill faith in the hearts of those who are not yet saved. Lord, save our little ones. Save our elderly. Save our young people. That each, Lord, would look to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Lest thy wrath would one day pass through them. O Lord, that this very Passover meal that turned into the Lord's Supper may be used of thee to cause their eyes to so look to Christ by faith that they may be certain that they are safe from thy wrath forever because of the love of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.